I think that's it for announcements. So let us move on to the teaching this morning. We're continuing in our series on the life of David. We are in 2 Samuel chapter 18 today. I'll give you a moment to turn there if you're going to be following along in your own Bible. We'll be in 2 Samuel chapter 18. If you don't have your Bible or you're having a hard time finding it, we'll also have the passage on the screens next to me so you can follow along there. We'll be in 2 Samuel 18 today, starting in verse 1, and we'll be reading about half the chapter. Once again, 2 Samuel chapter 18, we'll be starting in verse 1. Once you guys are ready. All right. Well, let us go ahead and get started here. In 2 Samuel chapter 18 and verse 1, it says, David reviewed his troops and appointed commanders of thousands and of hundreds over them. He then sent out the troops, a third under Joab, a third under Joab's brother Abishai, son of Zariah, and a third under Ittai of Gath. The king said to the troops, I must also march out with you. You must not go, the people pleaded. If we have to flee, they will not pay any attention to us. Even if half of us die, they will not pay attention to us because you are worth more than 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better if you support us from the city. I will do whatever you think is best, the king replied to them. So he stood beside the city gate while all the troops marched out by hundreds and thousands. The king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, treat the young man Absalom gently for my sake. All the people heard the king's orders to all the commanders about Absalom. Then David's forces marched into the field to engage Israel in battle, which took place in the forest of Ephraim. Israel's army was defeated by David's soldiers, and the slaughter was vast that day, 20,000 dead. The battle spread over the entire area, and that day the forest claimed more people than the sword. Absalom was riding on his mule when he happened to meet David's soldiers. When the mule went under the tangled branches of a large oak tree, Absalom's head was caught fast in the tree. The mule under him kept going, so he was suspended in midair. One of the men saw him and informed Joab. He said, I just saw Absalom hanging in the oak tree. You just saw him? Joab exclaimed. Why didn't you strike him to the ground right there? I would have given you ten silver pieces and a belt. The man replied to Joab, Even if I had the weight of a thousand pieces of silver in my hand, I would not raise my hand against the king's son. For we heard the king command you, Abishai, and Atai, protect the young man Absalom for me. If I had jeopardized my own life and nothing is hidden from the king, you would have abandoned me. Joab said, I'm not going to waste my time with you. He then took three spears in his hand and thrust them into Absalom's chest. While Absalom was still alive in the oak tree, ten young men who were Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom, struck him, and killed him. Joab blew the ram's horn, and the troops broke off their pursuit of Israel because Joab restrained them. They took Absalom, threw him into a large pit in the forest, and raised up a huge mound of stones over him. And all Israel fled, each to his own tent. This story that we're going to be looking at over the next couple of weeks of Absalom's fall is a story that is a heavy dose of realism for those who tend to idealize or oversimplify or reject any sort of nuance when it comes to Scripture or thinking about God's wisdom in life. 
Now, whenever I talk about a heavy dose of realism and rejecting the, for the people who reject nuance and so on, I'm not saying that God is unknowable. And I'm not saying that he's undefinable. I'm not saying that truth is relative or that morality is situational. These are the kind of things that we're told today, the culture you swim around in. And that's not what I mean by saying any of these things. Rather, the, the truths of God are, in fact, black and white. However, the black and white truths of God are worked out in a fallen world where matters tend to begin to bleed together into gray. And so whenever we look around at our fallen world where it's sometimes hard to discern the truths of God or God's will, what we need to do is read God's word. Because what we do whenever we read God's word is it helps to increase the contrast in our gray world until we can start to see a clearer picture. So what the Bible helps us to do is to see reality in its full complexity, where we on the one hand avoid simplistic answers, while on the other hand avoid any kind of mushy thinking. We avoid the oversimplicity or the rejection of nuance, but we also avoid uh, those who would say that, that truth is relative or that God is undefinable, unknowable. As we move, go through this story and we look at the different major characters in it this week and the next couple of weeks, we're, we're going to see how God's truth and wisdom works out in our gray world. And we're going to try to, through looking uh, carefully and seriously at Scripture, see how it helps us in this very gray situation to increase the contrast so that we can gain some clear pictures and wisdom to apply to our life. And so, like I said, we're going to work through this uh, particular story a little bit slower than we have in the past couple of weeks, and we're going to look at each of the major players or characters in this story, and uh, them along with David. And so today we're going to start with who is undeniably the main character in this chapter, being Absalom. Today we're going to look at Absalom and David. Here we see the end of Absalom. He had uh, risen up in great power and glory. He had begun this rebellion against God's anointed king. He had turned the hearts of Israel away from who was up until this time, uh, or, or, who, or who was still even at this time, the most famous figure in Israel's history, uh, only to be compared with the great patriarchs of their nation, Abraham and Moses. This Absalom had risen up to this height, and yet he now ends in a very ignoble and shameful death. We see this playing out in history across the world and across broader world history, even outside of Scripture, that those tyrants of the earth and those kings who would set themselves up and those, those uh, men who would pursue their own glory and receive the glory and worship of the people and the nations over God very often find themselves receiving an ignoble and shameful end. We can see this in history when we look at Soviet Russia. The strongest leader in the history of Soviet, Soviet Russia was, without a doubt, the man Joseph Stalin, one of the history's worst dictators. Stalin had an absolute secure hold on power, unlike few that any other dictators could have dreamed to have had, not only over his, his cabinet and his, his committees, his military, but even over the population. He controlled what they thought. He controlled what they loved and what they believed. He had, over the course of his uh, rule, he had millions of people either executed or sent to the gulags to eventually die. People who were uh, largely innocent, and not just members of the military, but just even average people 
in, who lived in Russia. Stalin enjoyed glory and power, and yet he, he as well faced a shameful end. Whenever one evening in a drunken stupor had a stroke, soiled himself, and then fell on the floor to die because no one was brave enough to go in the room and check on him because he had such fear over all those who worked around him. Whenever they heard the commotion, they were too afraid to even go and see him. It wasn't until hours later that they went to check on him to find that he was already uh, too far gone, laying there in his own incontinence. For all of his power and glory, he meets a shameful end. And we see the same thing happening to Absalom. In his, the, the, the love that the people have for him. In his displays of vitality, with, as, we can, uh, uh, as we could say, with David's concubines. The affections of the people, his celebrity, he has a gory and shameful death. Here is the main point that we learn from looking at the manner of Absalom's death. Ruin is the end of all who oppose the kingdom of God. Ruin, destruction, is the end for all those who oppose the kingdom of God. Because this is what Absalom was doing, we must, we must remember. It goes deeper than, uh, than, than family drama. Yes, there was family drama happening between the son of David against David and, and so on. There was drama between Absalom and his brother uh, Amnon. We, but it goes deeper than that. It goes deeper, deeper even than the politics of the situation and the coup that Absalom tried to uh, organize in order to overthrow his father's throne and take it for himself. It goes deeper than all these things to it being a, a rebellion against God's kingdom. Because David was God's anointed. David was God's chosen king. It was the, you might remember how I, I taught this several weeks ago. David, in a sense, was only a steward over the throne that was not ultimately his, but the Lord's. He was a steward king over Israel, a kingdom that was not ultimately his, but that was God's. It was God's kingdom, God's throne, and he had anointed David to be the one to sit in that throne. So Absalom's rebellion against David and the kingdom was ultimately a rebellion against God and God's kingdom. And look at his end. And we might ask ourselves, but why does it have to end this way? You know, it's rare that we read in Scripture such a detailed description of a person's death. The narrator, we'll see this as we continue to look at this chapter in the next couple weeks, the narrator slows down his storytelling in this chapter here to tell us in detail. Notice that there's no details really about the battle. He goes very quickly through the battle itself, which apparently took the lives of 20,000. No details there, but then he slows down to tell us about how Absalom died. He's also going to slow down to tell us about the reactions of David and of others and so on, because these are the things he wants to see. So, but, but why is it necessary for Absalom to meet such a gory and shameful end? You've got to remember who is in control. Absalom is not in control. Another layer to the shamefulness of his death is that for all of his power, for all of his um, you know, cleverness and scheming, he's silent in this chapter. We never hear a word from him again. Um, who is in control? It's not Absalom. It's not Joab. It's not David. The Lord is in control of this situation. If you were with us last week, you might remember. 
If you go back to chapter 17 and verse 14, in the midst of all the dialogue and what was happening there uh, with, with Absalom in Jerusalem, David now on the run, the espionage that was happening in the, the saboteur that David had in Jerusalem, you might remember that in verse 14, the narrator pauses to tell us that God had ordained for Absalom's power to be undermined by Hushai, David's spy. He had ordained for his wisdom to be undermined because he had ordained, he had decreed Absalom's fall, his downfall. So why does it have to end this way? Because God is in control of this situation. And God had decreed the downfall and destruction of his enemy. If we consider the nature of the death and burial of Absalom in the story, it also helps us to make a little bit more sense of it as well. Consider the nature of both his death and burial in this situation. First of all, his death. It says that he is in the, the battle, uh, riding away on his, on his mule. He's going through, and it sounds as though this forest was filled with thick trees that were, were low as well as great pits. That's what it was talking about whenever it said that the forest claimed more people than the sword that day. And it tells us that there is this tr- the, the tangled tree and the pits. That, that must be what it's referring to. That in Israel's fleeing away from David's forces, many men were falling down into these pits or were getting, uh, getting clocked by a tree branch or so on. And Absalom gets that as well. He's fleeing away, and he gets caught in the low-hanging, tangled branches of a tree. Now, the exact details of it, scholars differ on. You know, earlier it had told us that Absalom had this long, flowing hair. So kind of the the common reading or interpretation that people give is that as he was riding away, his hair got tangled in the tree in some way that caused him to hang from the branches as his mule kept riding away. Other commentators say that once again, a little bit more gory, that his head, his skull itself might have gotten caught in like the fork of some tree branches, and then he was hanging there. We don't know. But here he is, and he is hanging from a tree whenever they find him and they execute him. Remember what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 21. It says, if anyone is found guilty of an offense deserving the death penalty and is executed, and you hang his body on a tree... You are not to leave his corpse on the tree overnight, but are to bury him that day. Listen to this. For anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. Why does he have to end this way? Why the gore and the the shamefulness of it all? Because God is showing his decree being carried out. Absalom, for his rebellion against the Lord and his anointed, is cursed. And God is executing his justice on Absalom. More than that, we also see in other places in, um, in the Old Testament how those who, who received death by stoning or it, even those who had been executed and they were buried with stones placed on top of them was another sign of God's judgment being executed on that individual. Uh, if you go download my notes later, I have some scripture references uh, to those other passages if you want to go read those. We see, uh, it, especially in the book of Joshua, them defeating the kings of other nations, and the kings after being executed would be buried under stones to show Yahweh's victory and justice carried out over those kings. Absalom is hung from a tree and then buried under stones. He, he, God is showing his justice 
which was decreed against Absalom, being carried out. Because ruin, once again, is the end of all who oppose the kingdom of God. Yet, here's where it gets hard to interpret and to understand, and some, some grayness comes in. Yet, though those things are so clear, we see David earlier in the chapter requesting gentleness be shown to Absalom. As his men are charging out into battle, he tells the three commanders who are, who are over all of his forces, Joab, his brother, Abishai, and then Ittai of Gath. You might remember Ittai from a few chapters earlier. He tells them, you know, he doesn't care what you do in battle. He says, but deal gently with my boy. His, his, the idea that he has in mind is that they would peacefully capture Absalom and then bring him back as a, uh, as a political prisoner rather than slay him on the battlefield. But whenever Absalom is found, Joab has a different plan in mind. We'll look at Joab and David in another week. But, once again, it's clear that God is executing his justice on Absalom. He is hung from a tree. He's buried under stones. But it seems as though it was David's will that Absalom be spared, be given some gentleness. However, deliverance for David in this story means disaster for Absalom. Absalom meets his justice, but David can't see that. I think whenever we read this story, like I said, and we read the, the grayness of this story, we need, like I said, the, 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 the uh, clarity that comes from turning up the contrast of Scripture to help us see the truths in it, to discern it well. So we need to see what God is doing because we might also have our hearts torn when we read this story. We might feel ourselves being pulled towards David and agreeing with him. His son, his boy, deal gently with my son. The request of a father who is, who's broken over the state of not only just his kingdom and his throne, his administration, but also broken over the state of his family. And just desiring that the brokenness not get any worse with more death in his own family and household. Deal gently with him. We might feel ourselves pulled towards that. And then as well, also kind of shocked by what then ends up happening. But turning up the clarity by, or, or turning up the contrast so we can see the clarity in this story is what we realize is this. That David's sentimentality about his son blurs his discernment, and he forgets God's justice. Earlier, David was not so sentimental, because after Absalom had murdered his brother Amnon, he fled away into a self-imposed exile, and David did not pursue him. David was content with that being justice his son being exiled from the kingdom. But you can go back and read all the, the details of it later. They bring him back in, and David says, okay, he can come back to Israel, but he will not re, re, uh, return to my household. Until Absalom uh, finds a way to twist David's arm and to accept him back in. You see, earlier David was able to retain some sort of a sense of justice and not have his discernment so blurred. But yet here, his sentimentality blurs his judgment, his discernment, and he forgets that this was the day of Absalom's judgment. This was the day of Absalom's judgment. His opportunity to be dealt with gently has passed. 
That's the difficult truth that we read about in this passage for Absalom. And what we need to realize, as we might also as well feel ourselves pulled between the different wills, between the will of David for gentleness, but then the will of God to execute his justice. What we need to understand is that we frequently have our discernment blurred by sentimentality as well. Just like David, we often have our discernment whenever it comes to looking at the world around us, looking at the lost around us, looking about those who oppose the kingdom of God now. We tend to get sentimental and also forget that God's justice is set against all those who oppose him. This is true for those who oppose the kingdom of God today, just as it was in David's kingdom. God's justice is opposed uh, to all of them. His wrath is set upon them. And there is a day of judgment coming for them, just as there was for Absalom. And yet, by our, uh, we, we become, uh, complacent. We become complacent. We become sentimental in our discernment and our remembrance of God's judgment on those who oppose him is lost and blurred from our thinking. But our sentimentality needs to be rocked with a dose of realism. That comes from this chapter, whenever we read about the end of Absalom, which is that there are people all around us who have the opportunity to be dealt with gently now, but are heading towards disaster. The idolatrous and the wicked, the unrighteous and the disobedient of our generation will not escape God's wrath on the day of judgment. They also, who have chosen opposition to the kingdom of God, and who have chosen sin, who have chosen idolatry, their end will be curse, just like Absalom's was. Their death will be one of of condemnation and of justice being poured out, and their end will be God's wrath. But do our hearts hurt and ache And do we feel a sense of urgency for those around us who are still opposed to the kingdom of God? Do we remember their end and feel a need, an obligation, a responsibility to tell them that there's an opportunity to be dealt with gently now? And if they do not turn, that opportunity will pass. Or Do we, like David, become filled with sentimentality? We allow ourselves to be comfortable and complacent and forget God's judgment. And therefore, we allow our friends, we allow our family, we allow our neighbors, our coworkers, those that we we love. We see those in our culture who we allow ourselves to be entertained by. And maybe even, God forgive us, entertained by their own depravity. And have no, and our hearts do not break because our vision is blurred and our discernment is blurred and we have forgotten that ruin will be their end. What this means for us, whenever we read this story and we read about David and Absalom's fall, and what we need to take from it is that we must declare the gospel of the kingdom to the lost. Friends, we have a responsibility and an obligation now 
for all of those who are lost around us, for all of those who have chosen wickedness, who have chosen idolatry and disobedience to God. We must not let our hearts become complacent and blurred by the sentimentality of the affection that we feel for them. And assume that because of the affection that we feel for them and that because God has a love for all of his creation, that his judgment would pass over them without their acceptance of the gospel. We must remember that we have a responsibility to declare the gospel of the kingdom to them. We cannot wait until a person's death to pray that they be dealt with gently. David was too late. His request for gentleness towards Absalom was too late. And how frequently are we too late as well? We wait until the end. And then at the funeral, we talk about how we, we hope uh, maybe they made a decision, right? And we, and we pray that they're on the right side now, on the other side. But, but where was that care? Where was that desire in that questioning and that urgency while there was time for them to be dealt with gently? Do not wait. If we wait until their day of judgment, the time has passed. How often do we desire the goodness and blessing for our lost neighbors, but then we do not tell them about the way to receive it. Friends, if we have been complacent and if we have been silent when we ought to have spoken, and if we have just allowed sentimentality to blur for us what is the end of those around us that we, that we love and that we care for but who are not in the kingdom, then we... We need to repent ourselves for our disobedience, for not picking up our cross and following after Christ and obeying the callings that he has put on our lives. We must repent and commit to no more waiting, no more excuse making. We need to wake up and throw off our complacency. We need the dose of realism that comes from this passage, as I said before, to wake us up and to commit to declare the gospel of the kingdom. What is the gospel of the kingdom? It's simple. Repent and believe the good news. To all those who oppose the kingdom of God, to all those who oppose the king of the kingdom, Jesus Christ, and uh, submitting themselves to the king as their lord, their king, and as their savior, who oppose obedience to him, we need to declare the good news that they can repent now that there's opportunity to be dealt with gently, that there's opportunity for their sins to be forgiven, to judgment, for, for the judgment that should be uh, uh, executed upon them to be passed over now. If they would turn away from their rebellion, turn away from their disobedience, and accept the good news of the kingdom. What is the good news of the kingdom? The good news of the kingdom is that the rightful heir to the throne is that the anointed of God himself, the anointed king, instead of executing the curse on us, took the curse on himself. You see, in the story of David and Absalom, it is David, God's anointed king, who is saved from wrath and is the rebellion who is put, the, the rebel, who is put under curse. But in the gospel of the kingdom, we see that it is the anointed king, Jesus Christ, the righteous, the obedient, and that we rebels are not the ones who are placed under the curse, but it is Jesus the King who is placed 
under the curse. As Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Jesus was hung on the cross, right? A, a frame made of wood from a tree. He was hung on the tree, cursed by God. The, and yet the, the anointed king, so that by taking our curse on himself, our sins might be forgiven. Our rebellion might be forgiven. Our disobedience might be forgiven. The debt that we owe to God for our breaking his law, for our rebellion against him. Christ on the, on the cross, as Paul says, redeems us. What that means is he pays that debt. This, this language of redemption, what it is referring to is the price that it would take to purchase someone out of their slavery. For those of us who are slaves to sin, for those of us who have been slaves to idols and who have, uh, who have a debt to pay to God because of our sin that we could never have paid for ourselves, that leaves us in our slavery to sin and our end in death, Jesus pays that debt. He redeems us from that slavery so that we may now be co-heirs with him, brought into the kingdom to live now no longer as sons and daughters of the enemy, but sons and daughters of God. No longer rebels, but elevated to the status of co-heirs with Christ. Do you know what that means? No longer rebels, but raised up to the status of sitting at the royal table, being a part of the royal family. Not by any of our works. Not God sitting back and waiting for us to prove ourselves worthy of it. The only way to receive it, to accept it, is to receive it as a free gift. This is the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. Friends that you have enjoyed, that we have shared in and worshiped together. And that we have a responsibility to declare to the lost and dying world around us. Declare the gospel of the kingdom to those around you. Do not wait. Do not allow complacency or sentimentality to lure you into sleep or to blur your vision. Let's pray. Father, place a holy urgency on all of our hearts that we might remember what was once our destiny that we might remember the grace that we have experienced, the mighty work of your spirit and the power of your mercy that we have experienced. And know, Father, that there are so many around us who have yet to experience that grace, that mighty act of the spirit that brings a new heart, that brings a new spirit, new life, that brings forgiveness, that brings freedom from sin, shame, guilt, and death. But Father, they need to hear. They need messengers. Lord, forgive us for our inaction. Forgive us for our complacency. Forgive us for our fear. For avoiding awkwardness. by the boldness that comes from your spirit 
in an attitude of humility and of love with a persuasion that can only come from you, Holy Spirit. Empower us to repent from this disobedience and to declare the good news of the kingdom to the lost and dying world around us. We pray this in the name of our King, Jesus Christ. Amen.